We're in Matthew 26 this morning, and uh, what I don't normally ask is this, but I, and I'm asking you from the, from the bottom of my heart, I would love for you to turn off your phones or silence them. What we're about ready to go through and what we're about ready to dive into is some, um, it's some gut-wrenching stuff, and it deserves our attention. It deserves our focus to study the Word of God with as minimal distraction as possible. Um, so if you would just do that right now, that'd be fantastic. And turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be starting in verse 47 this morning. Matthew 26, verse 47. We're going to go through 27.10. And there's a real intentional reason why we're going to take this much scripture on this morning. Sometimes when we look at, dial it down so much and just look at a small passage of scripture, we lane, we, we miss out on the bigger perspective of scripture. And I don't want to miss that this morning. Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to read through all of this, and I just pray that you read along um, and hear these words, these ancient words given to us through Matthew by the power of the Holy Spirit. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people came. And, And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, I, the one I will kiss, is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once send more than 12 legions of of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And, they have pin- and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, none Though many false witnesses came forward, at least at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, 
From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated to the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went down to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away, delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the money, the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put the money into the treasury since it is blood money. And so they took counsel and brought, bought with him the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these ancient words and that they are true, they are trustworthy. And they are life-changing. Father God, I pray that this morning as we look at how Jesus revealed himself to us so that we might know him, we might wrestle with our response to who he is. And then even as children of God, we still need to respond correctly to Jesus Christ. And I know, Lord, this week I have struggled to do so. And many with me. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts this morning that we once again call upon our God and cry out for the grace that is found at the mercy and seat of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In seminary, one of the things that we were instructed to do 
in narrative literature was to do character studies. And then oftentimes when you do a character study, you're able to understand the meaning of the text and why the story is being told. This morning we're going to do exactly that. We're going to take the time to do a character study on four different individuals. Jesus, Judas, the religious leaders who, interestingly enough in this text, consist of the high priests and the elders of the people. And finally, Peter. We're going to take a moment to look at them. And Jesus is the central theme and the central character throughout this this narrative, this historical narrative. We, as Christians, as we said earlier in the Nicene Creed, we profess these things to be true and this to be the inerrant word of God. And we desire to follow the word of God and to obey all that it says and instructs for us. And so doing, when we study and we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we accept these things to be true about Jesus and how when Jesus speaks, he is revealing himself to us so that we might know him. Well, the scene picks up, and it's interesting because Jeffrey spoke. Thanks, Jeffrey, for filling in for us last week. Really appreciated that, brother. Um, I handed him a great passage to preach, but a very heart-wrenching passage to preach. As Jesus pleads with his father in the garden, And in verse 45, and then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I almost wish sometimes in your text there, there's a little paragraph break and a little line there. I almost wish we could just get rid of that break and move it up because it's it, this action is flowing as jesus is saying these things the guards are walking into the garden with clubs and with swords and with torches and they're approaching jesus and they're being led by judas how many of y'all camped at night a few folks camp at night right and and, and but like without high powered like the fifty thousand lumen whatever you know if you just went out there with like candles, imagine if you just went out there with candles and, and maybe a, a large torch and you went out there and walked around in the wilderness, you, you would have a hard time discerning people's faces. In fact, in the military, we do complete blackout operations. And if you approach a guard point at night, you, you have these, these code words that we would give people. And, and when, when it was approached, they'd put it in a sentence and they'd, they'd say the sentence and one of the words in that sentence was the code word. So the person guarding the gate would know it's one of a friendly, one of theirs. And they in turn would issue the correct response in a sentence to that person and then let that person in. Well, Judas is essentially that for the guards. Judas has said, I will fill this thing. In fact, I will, Jesus has, you look at this picture. It's like Judas is really hacked off at Jesus for failing Judas. Because in Judas's mind, Jesus has not lived up to what he wanted him to be. And so he is more than happy to lead the procession of, of guards into the garden and kiss Jesus on the cheek. And give him this greeting, grace to you kind of thing. Rabbi, you notice though what Jesus never, or Judas never calls Jesus? Lord. He calls him rabbi, he calls him teacher, but not Lord. 
Judas comes and, and Jesus turns to him and, and don't mistake this. This word in the English says friend. And we're like, well, what's he calling him friend for? It's like if you were to meet somebody you haven't seen in a very, very long time and call him friend. It's like this distanced relationship. Jesus is saying this to show that this relationship is, is broken. It's distanced. Well, Peter gets up in arms and he slices off one of the slave's ears. And Jesus rebukes Peter. And I, I want to be careful here. Some people have taken this passage and what's said here by Jesus to, to, to become a non-combatant, to be a person who's against guns and all this stuff. I think if you want to go with that, that social or political agenda from this text, you're going to really miss the point of Scripture. That's not what Jesus is driving at. Jesus is not telling people. Because we saw earlier in the text, Jesus says, Pick, sometimes you're going to have to carry a sword. Sometimes you should leave it at home. So that just doesn't fit nicely here. But what Jesus is saying is put the sword away, Peter. Because these things must happen. But Peter, you don't believe they should yet. You're still fighting my plan. You're still trying to stand in the way of my plan. And so you don't believe these things really should happen yet. Put the sword away, Peter. Because, listen, let's be quite honest. Jesus could have called down legions of angels, 72,000 angels he could have called down to protect himself. Jesus is going to be perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Jesus is revealing himself as the innocent atonement sacrifice. Innocent in that Jesus never sinned. He was perfect from birth till death and, and eternity future. Jesus is perfect without sin, without blemish, and innocent, and the fact that he goes before us as the innocent one, the perfect one, who goes willingly to be the atonement sacrifice. He's not like a lamb who is drugged to the altar. He himself will go. An atonement meaning that Christ will pay the price of sin and death so that those who are in Christ Jesus might have life. Christ will pay that debt. Israelites sacrificed for thousands of years, animals upon animals upon animals. In fact, we read in Josephus, a Jewish historian, that in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, that year, on the Day of Atonement, 240,000 lambs were slaughtered. But none of them willingly went. None of them knowingly went before the altar to die on behalf of anyone else. Jesus Christ, the atonement lamb, went. And he's the sacrifice. Jesus is revealing himself in this way as we go throughout this text, as he deals with the religious leaders, as he deals with how they spit upon him and in his response. And for those who have made this statement that Jesus never, ever claims to be God. Don't miss his statement to the high priest when he says, you have said so in regards to with their question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? They are asking him, are you the promised Messiah? Christ, Messiah, are you the one that God has promised? And Jesus responds, you have said so. What you have said, what you understand is this much of it. 
I'm going to give you a bigger picture. And the bigger picture he gives them freaks them out. It freaks them out so much that they can't believe a person is speaking this in their midst. They rend their clothes because he is a blasphemer. Because what he has just done is he has said, not only am I Jesus Christ, the son of God, I am going to sit at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, God the Father, power, and someday I will return and judge in the clouds the living and the dead. This was beyond what they could handle. Jesus is making a claim, a statement. He is the Christ. That's what he's going to do. As we further go through this text, and we're going to talk about it in the next two weeks as we look at this, and we continue to look at these character analysis of the people that Jesus interacts with as he reveals himself as the innocent atonement sacrifice, people are going to respond to Jesus. And I think today people are still responding in similar ways. The first person that Jesus is going to interact with and who responded to Jesus, and we've kind of seen this a little bit, is, is, is good old Judas, right? Judas comes up and he's, man, he's arrogant. Jesus was supposed to be this for him. He followed Jesus because he had an agenda for Jesus to benefit him. He was a thief. He stole from the money purse. Why? He could justify stealing from the money purse. Why? Because it was for his benefit. And that money was there for him to benefit. The reason he followed Jesus wasn't because he wanted to call Jesus Lord and submit to him. And so that someday Jesus could go and kill Pilate, run the, kill Caesar, run the Roman army out, and he could be one of the knights of the round table. He could have position, power, authority, land. Jesus was there to benefit him on his timetable and his way. Judas was dialed up for Jesus to benefit him. And when Jesus revealed, I'm not going to, and Judas, I think, you know, we talked about this, caught that understanding. Wait a minute. He's going to die. And now he's not going to take over things. He's going to die. I don't need him to die. I need him to live and kill people and and give me my power and my authority. And when he realizes that he's not going to get that from Jesus, what does he do? Well, he goes to the religious leaders and he says, what can I get for Jesus? I'm going to get mine. We got together as a preaching team this week and had a great time and conversation. Makes my guys feel uncomfortable, but I like to credit them for great ideas. And Jeffrey said, you know, when I think of Judas... I think he looks at Jesus as kind of like a wishing well. I'll throw my coin in. I'll, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll go along with your plan. And, and until the minute you don't benefit me that I'm walking away, I'm going to go find something else that will satisfy my needs and meet my desires. We read about Judas in the conclusion of his story. But before we read about the conclusion of Judas' story, Judas is motivated by money. Judas is motivated by figuring things out on his own. He probably would be viewed today as a very sharp person, very shrewd business person. People would probably look to Judas and say, man, we need to listen to his marketing strategy. He's doing something right because look at the cars he's driving. Look at the way he's living. He's got to be doing something right. We need to tune into that guy because he, he's living something good. He would have been shrewd. He was 
arrogant in his betrayal. He's living out what he thinks is the right decisions for himself, and he's doing what benefits him. He's living for himself, numero uno. And some of us were sitting here, man, that guy is just a jerk. And that guy, man, why didn't Jesus, why did Jesus call him? And Because Jesus, again, he wanted to be perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, and all the scriptures might be fulfilled to him. That's why. And we see people today like that. Unbelievers, not yet believers. People who are out there and they may feign towards an existence of Jesus Christ. I I joke around about Texas a lot because in Texas everybody's a Christian, right? You're born in the Lone Star State, you're a Christian. But, But the way they view Jesus a lot of times in Texas, and yet what's crazy is in Texas, if you're driving through Dallas... There are more billboards for gentlemen's clubs. I got to be kidding me. Really, a gentleman's club? I mean, my dad didn't tell me that a gentleman was that, but, and, but they're all Christians. Jesus is something that, that can be used to be part of a social club, to be part of it in group. And, and, and when all of a sudden that doesn't fit, then we can leave Jesus behind and then pursue something else. And I think people really have good intention. They're like, you know what? I want to raise my family in the right way. I want my family to, to, I want to have good kids. I want to have respectful kids. I want my kids to get, you know, decent grades. I want them to go off to college. I want them to do nice things and, and be a good person. So what we'll do is there, there's some good stuff at church and there's some good stuff associated with Jesus. And so we'll, we'll attend church. We'll go to church sometimes and, and hang out and we'll say we're Christians and, and, and we'll follow God and we'll be obedient to God as long as, as long as it's beneficial towards us. But the minute God calls us to something or to be something that we you know, don't feel we should be or doesn't fit our scheme of life and the way we feel like life should go for us, then peace, Jesus, I'm out. In fact, we're a little, we're a little ticked off with him, a little mad at him because it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And all of a sudden, your, your kid comes home, and he, maybe he found marijuana, or he's got an F on his or her report card, or, you know, and, and, and maybe they're struggling in school to make friends, and maybe they're not excelling at sports the way you thought they should, or, you know, and, and, or maybe, maybe your marriage is on the rocks, maybe because of the kid stuff, now marriage becomes hard, and all of a sudden, you're going, God, where are you? I go to church, I pay my tithe, I walk old ladies across the street, I do nice things. Where are you? Why is this so hard? And we, we, we tossed our corns in the wishing well, and all of a sudden the wishing well is not giving us what we want anymore. And so we're out of here. We're going to turn our backs on Jesus and say, you know what? I followed God up to that point, but when he didn't give me what I wanted and what I, what I told him I needed, I'm out of here. God, I want to have a better job. I deserve a better job, God. I work really hard at my job. God, I honor you in my job. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't take pencils. I don't take paper clips. I do right. I work hard. Why haven't I gotten my promotion? I deserve that promotion, God. Where are you, God? Jesus, you told me, you know, you would take care of me. You'd watch over me. I need this promotion. If you're not going to give this to me, Jesus... I'm done with you. Family member gets sick. They start to suffer. 
Jesus, you better heal them. You don't heal them, Jesus. I'm done with you. I need them in my life. They're my whole life. If you take them from me, I will have nothing. Jesus was living out. You know what's crazy is I don't think it's just not yet believers who are living this way. I see Christians who are struggling with this as well. I see myself struggling with this at times. God, I've put in the time. I've thrown the coins in the well. Sometimes they were silver dollars. Once in a while, they'd be a gold coin. Come on. Aren't you aware what I've done for you, God? You know what I've sacrificed for you? Do you know what I've put my family through for you? Where are you? Do I run away from you because you're not giving me what I think? Do I flee from you because, hey, things just aren't going the way my plan had them going for? Oh. I think we're sometimes all of us maybe a little guilty being more like Judas than we're comfortable with. We don't ever want to be considered to be like Judas. Judas was all about taking care of things himself and if it didn't go the way he wanted, he was going to fix things so that they would. Well, Judas has a terrible realization. His terrible realization is found in, in Matthew 27. He realizes that Jesus is innocent and they've convicted him. I mean, it's like, duh. I mean, the religious leaders made it explicitly clear their intention was to kill him. And Judas comes before them and says, well, I'll give him to you. And all of a sudden, Judas realizes he's gotten himself in a whole heap of mess. And so he comes and he's going to fix it himself, right? He doesn't run into the Sanhedrin and say, I was wrong. He was innocent. This trial is a false trial. It's an illegal trial because of what I've done and what I've said here in this place. He doesn't do that. He waits till they turn Jesus over to Pilate and set things in motion that now that cannot be reversed. And he comes before the chief priest and the elders of the people, which is just a fascinating statement because elders of the people and these chief priests were representative of all the people of Israel. And their actions, they're representing the people of Israel. And he says to them, hey, here's your money back. I don't want to be considered part of this scheme. And they turn to him and they say, What? You're in this up to your neck, buddy. There's no going back now. Keep the money. Go buy a girl a nice ring. Go buy a house. Do something with it. But we're not taking it back. That's your money. That's your blood money. It's on you. And he throws it into the temple. As if somehow, if he just leaves it there, he won't be guilty of this action. But Judas is not repentant, and I don't want you, I really want you to miss this. He is not repentant. 
He is not confessing and repenting and turning from his sin. He is trying to fix something that he did and realized he was wrong. And that's what happens when you live a life of self-help. A life of self-help will ultimately realize you will hit a point in life where you go, I have failed myself and there's no point of no return. And I can't fix it anymore. I have failed, I have failed, I have failed, I have failed. I keep failing myself and my heart is broken And all of a sudden we reach this point of, and you have at that point a choice when you realize you can't help yourself anymore. You can either turn to Jesus or you can do the final ultimate self-help acts. Drunkenness, drugs, alcohol. I mean, you just, the list goes on. Severe depression, medication abuse. You can start those things or you can do what Judas did, which is the ultimate act of self-help is suicide. I can't fix it. So I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to hang myself. There was no repentance there. There was no remorse. Things didn't work out the way he wanted. And so he took it to its end conclusion. He killed himself. Now I want to be careful here. I am not saying that every person who commits suicide is going to be in hell. I'm not saying every person who commits suicide is on this track. What I am saying is this is where Judas was at. I do believe in severe mental depression and severe psychotic things that take place in the mind, chemical imbalance in the brain and those things. But in this case right here, Judas was about himself. And when he failed himself and there was no point of return, he killed himself. Brothers and sisters, when we as Christians turn to Jesus and tell him our agenda and then turn our backs when our agenda is not met, we are living for ourselves and for our own good. And we're trying to fix things ourselves. And I'm telling you what, we don't want that. God's plan is so much better than our plan. God's plan involves an abundant life in him. God gives us the opportunity to have strong marriages, to have kids that love the Lord. And let me tell you what, there's no guarantee of your kids growing up and playing college sports, your kids growing up with straight A's, your kids growing up never getting in trouble in school. In fact, I encourage all of us this morning that the number one priority for our kids need to be kids that passionately follow Jesus wherever that takes them breaks my heart to hear when I hear parents go, well, I've, I've talked to him. I said, boy, that little kid's got, he's going to be a preacher someday. Oh, dear God, I hope not. Why not? Oh, we know what you preachers go through. I would never want that for my kid. Or I would never want my kid to go to the mission field. They'd be too far away from me. I wouldn't be able to see them for holidays. And We, want, we should desire God's plan for our kids and our lives more than anything else in the world. Pursue him passionately, not our plan, not our agenda, because let me tell you what, our plans and our agendas stink. And they're filled with selfish desires. And they're not beneficial to God or for the body of Christ. We don't want to be Judas in our faith. We definitely don't want to be the religious leaders either. These jokers, these are, I would akin to today, our atheists, our people who adamantly oppose God. You see, the religious leaders, they wanted a king to come and to destroy the, the leadership and so that they could in turn be patted on the back and told, you guys have done great. 
You've been exactly what the people needed. You followed all the laws. Man, I applaud you guys. Way to go. Let me give you positions of power and authority in my kingdom. And boy, I'm just so proud of you guys. Great job. What they didn't want was someone to come tell them, you're a bunch of sinners. And you need to repent like everybody else. And you're wicked because you try to lead people towards this following of the letter of the law, but you, you abandon the heart that is supposed to be passionate for God. You're a bunch of legalists. And let's be quite honest, you obey certain aspects of the law, but you don't obey the law in its entirety because no man can, but you refuse to repent and confess of the areas of the law that you fail to obey. You just sweep it under the rung and write another law so you don't have to follow that law anymore. And for these guys, as we were talking, there was a statement that was made. I'm not sure who made it. It said, if Jesus was truly the Messiah, then he would be who I think he should be. The religious leaders, they want a God that they can create in their own minds. And, and we have people in the world today, atheists and people who push hard against, and they want a scientific God. They want a God that they can define in the physical realm. They want a God that makes sense to them. And they want to strip God of his power and his might. And they want to make him something finite that they can understand, manipulate, and control. And we see this in the scientific arena all the time. We won't even get started with the scientific method. It's supposed to be a method wherein which you create a hypothesis and test a hypothesis and not begin with a starting point and then try to prove the starting point. A, a.k.a. God doesn't exist, and so every bit of science is going to exist to disprove God. That's not true scientific method, but we won't go there. And what makes matters worse is then you've got religious leaders who said, you know what? The Jesus of the Bible, this Jesus who makes this powerful proclamation of his authority, his divinity, his holiness, the Jesus who talks about an eternal hell, the Jesus who talks about a life of, of pursuing him, Jesus who talks about hating your sin and pursuing him, this Jesus is too much for people, okay? It's too much. Let's help Jesus out. And so Rob Bell and McLaren have, have made some great, you know, just wonderful statements. Let's just reduce, let's do away with an eternal hell. Let's say, you know what, uh, if people don't trust in Jesus, Jesus is going to come back, we'll give them a little slap on the wrist, and then turn to them and say, okay, here's another chance. And they'll all believe and, and we'll all be in heaven together. And maybe there'll be a minute few that say, you know what, you know, are just absolutely rebellious, and, and there'll be some bad punishment for them, but it won't be eternal and won't be hell. Are you kidding me? You don't get it. When you start electing to choose certain words of Jesus Christ and believing in them, but not believing all of Jesus Christ, you've stripped the authority of Jesus Christ away from him, and he's no longer the innocent atonement sacrifice, and we no longer have hope, and guess where we're all headed? Hell! I don't think we get it when we feel we need to soften Jesus so he can become more acceptable. We write a ticket for people to go to hell. Because if Jesus isn't completely holy and perfect and just and righteous, then we are without hope. And we are damned. We cannot be people and have faith like the religious leaders did said, if you were, if you were truly Messiah, then you'd be like this. You got Clark Pinnock and Open Theist guys who, who make these statements that God is just, you know, he is sitting on the edge of his seat because he can't wait to find out what you're going to do next because he really doesn't know. They, they, that word sovereign to them, 
means that he's sovereign to what he knows, but there's stuff that he doesn't know. For us, when we sing sovereignty, is God knows it all, and he is surprised by nothing, and he is in control of everything. So if you're confused on that word sovereign, that's exactly what we mean when we sing it here and we talk about God is in control, and he's surprised by nothing. He wasn't surprised by Adam in the garden. He didn't go, oh, I'm going to create Adam and Eve and just wind this sucker up and see how it goes. He knew. This is what's so mind-blowing about our God is he knew it would cost him his son even before he spoke the world into existence. He knew it all, and he still did it. How amazing is our God? These guys were motivated by their power, their position. And I think we got some Christians out there that we, you know what? I've struggled with this as well. Is that we got this religious leader kind of mentality, Lord. I'll follow you as long as you don't ask to anything too great of me. And then when you do, I'll, I'll create a Jesus that, that is not as demanding. And we strip him of his power and his authority in our lives. And we become this goo of a Christian instead of this rock upon which God can build his church. Newsflash for us this morning. God is not accountable to us. He's sovereign and he's Lord. And we want Jesus. We want Jesus to be that innocent atonement sacrifice for us. Otherwise, Peter weeps for nothing. You are to create a chart, hierarchy of the social status back in those days. The first person that approaches Peter would be the lowest person on that chart. He was a girl. He was a little girl. She was a slave. But yet Peter is terrified. By her statement, you you know Jesus. You're one of his followers. You see, Peter, he's this impetuous guy in the garden. He cuts off, cuts off that slave's ear. He is still trying to tell Jesus what Jesus' plan is. We do this sometimes, don't we? We still try to tell Jesus, yeah, I've heard what you've told me, but let me correct you in this area and so we can get this shit pointed in the right direction, right? Pretty arrogant of us. Well, but Peter's acting with, with this, this pride and this arrogance in this direction. Like, Jesus, you told me you're going to go to the cross. Um, you know what? That, that's your plan, but I've got a different plan for you. And, so, and, and finally, Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away and that this is God's plan. And Peter goes to the courtyard outside of the high priest and he sits and he waits. And I don't know what he's sitting there waiting for. I don't know if he's like, maybe I get another run at this to save Jesus or I just got to find out what's going on. I don't understand. I'm so confused. I'm so full of fear. I'm so full of trepidation, but I don't understand this completely because you've got to be in Peter's shoes. 
Jesus has told Peter all these things, but he doesn't fully realize what must take place for him to have hope, life, and have forgiveness of his sins. Peter is still struggling with this idea of a physical kingdom, and what what Peter needs is the eternal kingdom. And Peter doesn't know that yet. He doesn't realize that yet, but he does. As, as Peter is confronted by one slave girl, and he, gets, he denies it, and he's confronted by, oh my goodness, another slave girl. I mean, if these girls would have gone to anybody and said, hey, he's one of Jesus' followers, they would have probably like, shut up, get away from me. In fact, those girls in that society probably wouldn't have told anybody because they were so low rung on that. Maybe they go sold their owner. Hey, I think I found one of Jesus' followers. What are you, shut up, go away. You're nothing in this society. But Peter is petrified. He's terrified. And finally, he ends up cursing and swearing an oath. And, and he says, I don't know the man. He doesn't say, I don't know my Lord. He doesn't say, I know, don't know. I don't know the man. But I want you to notice something here in verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Compare. Jesus is revealing himself as the innocent atonement sacrifice that must come. For Judas, you're not giving me what I want. You're just a meal ticket. You're just my wishing well. And when you're not turning out what I want, I'm walking away. For the religious leaders, they outright deny him because that's not the Jesus that they want. They want a different Jesus. They want a different Messiah. The one that will pat them on the back and definitely tell them everything they're doing is great, grand, and glorious. And never telling them that they're sinners. And so they outright reject Jesus altogether. In fact, we read as it goes along the incredible irony of the money that Judas gives back. They're going, well, we need to follow the law. Well, during that whole trial, they broke the law several times. You know, no trial for, for murder was supposed to be, ever be conducted at night. The two witnesses, they went out and sought false witnesses. It says it right there, false testimony. And finally, they can't even find guys that would come and corroborate because you have to have two corroborating testimonies. And finally, they find two guys with corroborating testimonies to bring them forward. But it's all, it's all just a show. It's all been already decided. It's, it's illegal. But here we're going to follow the law and take this money and abide what we're supposed to do. I mean, it's just, you're like, this is sickening. This is how they're responding to Jesus. But how does Peter respond to Jesus? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. He has sinned against God and there's nothing he can do about it. And all he can do is weep. Peter now realizes he needs the cross. Peter's now broken, no longer able to wield the sword, no longer able to say anything smart anymore, no longer to to plead for his plan over Christ. He now knows he needs Jesus to go to the cross for him because he just betrayed the Son of God. He just openly denied him. He needs the cross. beautiful thing about this wonderful story of of our God to us is that God restores Peter. Jesus talks, or Jeffrey talked about this last week. In John, we read of Peter's restoration. Jesus, three times Peter denies Jesus, three times Jesus restores Peter. And then on the day of Pentecost, oh my goodness, that's just crazy. 
I can't help but think as, as Peter's getting, as he's been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit with flaming tongues of fire. We can go there some other day and talk about that. But he's standing up and he gets ready to speak. And I can't help but as he's stepping up to there to speak and to proclaim, if in the back of his mind somewhere he goes, just a little while ago, I was the guy to betray Jesus three times, but because of the power of God, the grace of God being poured out on me, I get to now go proclaim Jesus Christ. I'm not done. My sin did not end me. The grace of God gives me power to overcome my sin and overcome death so that I can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to hear. It's the power of God being powerfully demonstrated in the life of Peter. And I can't help but think sometimes, brothers and sisters, and I don't want, I want to be very careful here not to make a direct correlation in that the revelation of who Jesus Christ was was being revealed at that moment to Peter as the, as the plan of God was being worked out in our physical realm, in our world. Peter was understanding who he was in Jesus and who Jesus was. But I can't help but think that sometimes when we're new believers in Jesus Christ and we gain the understanding that Jesus is God, and that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. We get that understanding when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. But that full understanding of all that Jesus has done and all the teachings of Jesus and how they change our lives and the radical transformation of our heart is this process being worked out in us. And I can't help but think sometimes when we're beginning to our stages of growth in Jesus Christ, we make mistakes. I have some Bible studies in Romans that I did while I was in Korea. I would love to have back. God can you just for a while transport me back, put me back there for a little while and let me, wait a minute, I said this or, or put me there before I said it and I could correct a lot of bad things because I said some things that were really off the mark. But because of this beautiful picture of Peter and the grace of God and the innocent atonement sacrifice, I get to turn to God and say, God, forgive me. I was stupid. And I said those things and they were wrong. And I give no, I give no um, excuse. And I need your forgiveness for that. And Lord, let me once again proclaim your word and truth and understanding and that it might be corrected by the power of the Holy Spirit filling me and working through me and proclaim the truth of the gospel to people. Please, Lord God, and then give me, Lord, continued humility that the minute I say something wrong that I have the humility to say, I said something wrong, correct it, so that the grace of God can be carried out in the body of Christ and to other people as I confess and repent and then help me understand correctly. So that again, I may get back up and teach and proclaim the word God accurately. See, that's our gracious God. He doesn't, he's not kicking us and trying to keep us down. He's convicting us so that we might repent. And if we've been here this morning and we're going, I've, I've struggled with being Judas. I've struggled with teaching Jesus like the wishing well. And I've been ta- passing in my coins. I've been tithing and, and, and so that I'll get something. And I've been coming to church so that I'll get something. And I've been reading my Bible so that I'll get something. And not because I just want to love Jesus and pursue him, but it's so that I can have something back that I want. If we've been living our lives like that, today's the day we get to repent of that, confess it, and pursue God. And he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We get to live for him. And maybe this morning you're struggling with this idea of, you know, God really isn't who I thought he was. And the more I learn about him, the more I realize how hard it is to follow him. 
he wants all of me, and I've been hesitant to give him all of me. I've been hesitant to surrender my whole heart to him. I've been hesitant to, to pursue him in the directions he has been calling me to go. And this morning, you need to confess and repent and surrender. God, God I've been living by my plan. And I realize my plan is garbage, and your plan is awesome, and it's life-giving, and it's abundant. And we have this chance to repent and confess and pursue. But understand something. Confession is an active thing. I could tell my kids I'm bad about this sometimes, driving down the road the wrong way or going in the wrong direction. And I'm, I'm on my way, I'm going to get there, right? And when I'm actually drawing being away from where we're supposed to be and not getting directions or not asking Christy or not following the directions she's trying to give me, right? And the only way to fix that problem is to turn to her and say, Christy, I'm sorry for not listening. You had the right directions. And then what do I got to do? I got to turn that doggone car around. I got to get off the highway, got to get back on the right on-ramp and then pursue the direction that we're supposed to go. If we're going to say we are confessing in our sins, then it means confession and repentance. It means that we then leave behind, we, we pursue Jesus Christ and the direction he wants us to go. And his grace is sufficient for us to do that. Peter's life serves as that great example for us. So that we together, brothers and sisters, might proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And let's stick with the truth. Let's stop trying to feel like we need to make excuses for Jesus. Let's stop feeling like we've got to dumb it down or we've got to somehow soften it so it's not offensive. Jesus Christ is offensive. It's just because he was what? He tells people that they're sinners involved in sin. He tells Christians we're sinners and need to repent of our sin and, and, and pursue him. That's what he does. He points it out to us. And but then he gives us this grace so that we might be forgiven our sins so that we can continue a life in him. We're without excuse. So let's not strip Jesus of his miraculous atoning power. Tell it like it is. And I'm not saying you need to go be the guy on the street corner hitting people in the face, telling them what the Bible's saying and they're going to hell. But I'm telling you when people come up to you and say, how can you follow Jesus? How can you do that? He's so legalistic. You're just full of religion. To not back away from that, to not cower from that conversation, but to lovingly engage that conversation. Well, man, I think you've got a messed up understanding of Jesus. And I'd love to tell you about the Jesus that I know, the Jesus of the Bible. And yeah, he does call us out on things. And yeah, he wants our whole lives. And yeah, he wants our hearts radically changed by him. But when we do that, we have this life in him and we have this future and this hope. What do you have? And let's not strip God of his power. Let's stick to the word of God. Let's stick to the word of God of truth. And let's be proponents of this gospel message that Jesus proclaims to us. I'm looking forward to moving into a time of communion with y'all. And the band wants to start coming back up, and we can. Um, I know Glenn's going to share some more things. But this morning was really sweet, taking communion with the, with the family in first service. Um, to just spend some time as a body and just for me to just confess those areas where God has just been convicting me. I'm telling you what, 
I'm tired. I know Christy and I got away last week, but I'm tired. And I think the real reason I'm tired, I'm tired deep down in my soul, and Jeffrey and I were talking about it this week. I think the real reason I'm tired is because I've, I've turned to God so many times that, God, I've, I've done this, I've done that. Where is my affirmation? Where is my sign that it's the right thing, going the right direction? When God is just saying to me, you trust me? You know I'm the God of the Bible. Do you really believe I am who I said I am? And I hope next week to stand in front of you with maybe a bit more energy. As this week, I just and I ask your prayer for me that, that, and, I, and my family as well, because I think we're all kind of tired together. And God would just touch our hearts, and as we study the Word of God and we're in prayer, we might not, we might just desire to know who He is this week and His character. So I look forward to taking communion with you all this morning as we take it with our families and friends and pouring into others' time. Glenn, if you would, I'm going to pray and Glenn's going to take over. Father God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the conviction that you put upon my own heart. Nobody wants to be called a Judas. Nobody wants to be called a chief priest, an elder of the people who murdered falsely interrogated, falsely tried Jesus. But Lord God, I think, I know we act more like those people than we do. Like Peter, who, when faced with his sin, wept bitterly. Lord God, please, this morning, let us weep for our sin. And at the same time, draw into the arms of our Savior who stands ready to forgive us of our sin and accept his forgiveness and pursue him. Lord, we, are, we want to be your children who follow you after you. Teach us, Lord God, who you are. And teach us and teach us and teach us and teach us. And when we learn that lesson, please don't give up on us, but teach us more. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.